Hello, potential listeners. Hello, Ashley. Hello. Um, this is the first episode of Cult Stuff and Chill, hopefully the first of many. Um, yeah, my name is Devin. My name is Ashley. And we are here to talk about fucked up shit with you guys because that is what we're passionate about is just the weird, unexplainable things in life. I don't know how to elaborate on that. That's that's kind of all it is. I think we both have a little bit of like a fucked up morbid fascination with like weird things. I would say mine's definitely more of a obsession because it, it's actually like a psychological difference between uh, like fascination and obsession. Mine's definitely like I have a skull in my front room. Like I plan on getting more. I don't plan on stopping. Like, I love that though. <laughs> I do not have a skull. However, I would like to have one very much. So maybe someday I'll get on that level of having skulls in my home. It's like a anchorman. Instead of many leather-bound books and mahogany, it's many <laughs> skulls and, um, I don't know, cats? Definitely cats. You remember that video? It's like, God, this was like early internet era where it's like the lady that's crying. I just want to adopt all the cats in the world. That's very much me. <laughs> I think if I had to pick like a vine or something, um, it's definitely like the little girl who's like, hi. I want to be famous. Hey, I want to be famous. <laughs> okay, so that's a, maybe a great note to start on. Like, <laughs> if you were to pick a Vine, or we'll even extend it out to TikTok, that would describe you, is that the one that you would pick? Definitely. There's also, like, a lost memory of, and I think it was a local commercial, and I think it was a dating commercial, where... It was like during the either the late 90s or early 2000s where the ladies like, hi, do you want to talk about something fun like magic? And like <laughs> I frequently reference that and nobody else remembers that. So it might be I made it up, but I have a vivid memory. I have insomnia and sleep deprivation. So mm -hmm. I watch like late night stuff and like that stuff just got ingrained on my psyche. So that's that fair. I think if I had to pick one, and I can't recall any vines off the top of my head, but there's one TikTok that really sticks with me. And if I, I, I think I have liked, so I'll maybe like insert the audio here or like we'll shout out this TikToker as if they want our clout, which is at zero. But anyway, <laughs> there's a TikTok of this guy and he's playing the Thomas the Tank Engine theme. And he's like really happy. <laughs> da, 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 da. And then he goes, fuck. And that's it. <laughs> And I think that's a very accurate representation of my mental state is just like trying very hard to keep it together. But then like, you just can't. Yeah. It starts out so well and then it just mm -hmm. derails. Just derails very quickly, which hopefully is not an accurate representation of this podcast. Hopefully we never get to the part where he's yelling fuck in a Thomas the Tank Engine mask at his piano. So hopefully that doesn't happen. We'll see. Yeah, but we can just lean into it. We'll just... Lean into the chaotic energy pretty heavily. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I was forged in chaotic energy. Like, that's my my safe space. Mm -hmm. I'm very much a Hufflepuff, so that makes me a little nervous. Yeah. Hufflepuff, and Libra energy, just trying to chill in the middle and not... Not cause any boat, problems. Baby. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm Slytherin Gemini energy. So I'm chaos. I'm let's do, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Like, don't need, don't need information. Just mm-hmm. let's go. But I feel like maybe that's a good like dichotomy to have, right? For a podcast here, kind of opposite, like opposites attract a little bit. Although yeah. I feel like we're very much like on the same wavelength, like 90% of the time. So yeah. It's just know. how we we go about doing things. It's like exactly, yeah. I'm like a doer, and you're more like a planner. You're like, mm-hmm. let's plan this out, let's think this out, and I'm just like, let's just balls to the walls, just fucking do it, and throw all the sh- shit at the wall and see what sticks. Which is a very good way to do it sometimes too, because like for me, sometimes I'll overplan and like <laughs> then I'll give myself too much planning and I'll get really self-conscious about my ideas and then I just won't do it. So the fact that we're sitting here today actually recording this is like a little bit incredible because I just like, first of all, I think I have a very annoying voice. So like to all of our listeners out there that think I have an annoying voice, I agree, but we're (laughs) still here and we're doing it and we're going to hope that this takes off because mama can't work a nine to five her entire life. She will go crazy. I hate yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. If my coworkers hear this, I actually like my job right now, but I hate <laughs> working nine to five. It's like, uh, di- did you see that commercial where it's like, it's I can't remember what it was for, but it's like Dolly Parton. And instead of nine to five, she's singing five to nine where like people that are like start their own businesses and stuff. Yeah. It's like that came oh out God, at the perfect time. It. That's a that's a sign from St. Dolly to to really get out there and make this podcast work. And look, I listen understand that for our like negative amount or zero amount of you know listeners that we have on this first episode, that putting these thoughts out there is like very ambitious, but you gotta manifest it into your life, right? I can't be out here like this is not gonna work, this isn't gonna be anything. At the very least, I want it to be a fun hobby where we have like a handful of people that listen and interact. And if that's what comes of this, then at Fine. the very That's least, cool. yeah. Let's get some let's get some sponsorships, man. Like I want that Adam and Eve sponsorship. Not because fresh. I need like a collection of glass dildos, but because I think that would just be a lot of fun to be like, <laughs> here's my Adam and Eve code if you guys want to go buy a butt plug. <laughs> you gotta make the people happy. You gotta get mm-hmm. them going. Wait, can I also manifest one other sponsorship that I really, really two actually? Two the now that I'm thinking of it. I would love Smile Direct Club because I did not wear my retainer. And that shit's too a little pricey for Mama right now, and also FabFitFun because oh, I love FabFitFun, but I'm not buying it right now because you know we're trying to be budget friendly over here. By the way, we're not sponsored by anybody right now. Anyone? We're sponsored so. by our own bank accounts. We're, so, we're sponsored by our sugar daddies. Mm-hmm. By our <laughs> loving partners who are probably sitting in the living room right now listening to me talk about this, like, babe, dial it back a little bit. (laughs) I think mine's still asleep. Excuse my sips, by the way. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, so I guess with that, we won't talk your ear off too much, and Ashley will get into your story here. And I hope you guys enjoy. And I hope you guys listen to this really long first episode. The ramblings of two mad women. The ramblings of two mad women.
So to start my topic out today, I first want to start with a note about that TikTok commune. You know, the one, the garden, Uh the one that has been like trying to recruit people over TikTok. And they made some like really tasteless jokes about drinking the Kool-Aid and like Jim Jones and being like, well, we don't know who Jim Jones is. Did you see Rel, the one with the dreads, that white girl with the dreads, posted this video. I think I sent it to you on TikTok of her like make uh, clearly making a joke that everyone thought it was a cult. And she's like got a little flame in front of her and she's like join our cult and i'm like rel this is a little too deep for you because you definitely skinned a cat and wore it as a hat also did you see they skinned the dog and wore it as a skirt yeah and she's like i'm gonna honor the dog by wearing it as a skirt it's like i would think the dog would probably mm-hmm. rather not be worn in yeah as a skirt. probably not <laughs> so like these kind of peaceful communities um you know they're all over communes have been over since the beginning of time um And my topic today is kind of a cautionary tale about how going after communes and cults uh, may end up in a huge bioterror attack and attempted murders. So let's get into it. Uh, Our story starts in 1950s India, where Chandra Mohan Jain, or as he came to be known, uh, Bhagwan Shuri Rajneesh, and later Osho, um, he dropped out of college to become a public speaker um, because he had some pretty controversial views about how, like, India's socialism was just not going to work because their uh, socialism hasn't, or their capitalism hadn't reached its maturity. So he had, like, a bunch of different beliefs, but, like, the main one being that, like, basically he was going to create the perfect version of capitalism. Which, he definitely sounds like the type of guy that doesn't wear shoes around campus. He's yeah. definitely barefoot on campus. Oh, yeah. I mean, l- like, if you see pictures of him, he's literally, I mean, he's an Indian guru, so he's wearing, like, the, the long robes and, like, everything. But, yeah, he's he's a guy that's barefoot on campus that plays Wonderwall at parties. And that's the so, only song he knows how to play. Yeah. And he doesn't really know how to play it. He's just, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, strumming chords that don't make sense together. So... He believed that, like, orthodox religions and polite society in general were just, like, full of horseshit, that they were too restrictive, that people were, like, emotionally, spiritually, sexually blocked, and, like, they just couldn't reach enlightenment because they were so blocked. Um, And that led to him, like, becoming this controversial movement leader, and they eventually were calling him, like, the sex guru and, like, the, the media, which I think is what that Michael Myers movie is based off of. I, so I know Mike Myers is a comedian, but that's not what my mind went to at first. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it becomes that. It definitely becomes that. Um, among his beliefs also was that the Western world had half-fulfilled humans and that the Eastern world had half-fulfilled humans. And, like, together he was going to connect them and make, like, a whole human, which, like, leaves out the rest of the world. Um, he was also kind of into eugenics, which sketchy. Um, and a delight. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, his beliefs were also built off the ideals that you don't follow like scripture or religious rules. Like he had commandments, and like there were some stuff he threw in there, but mostly it was just like live your life, man. Like free love. Like if you want to have an open marriage, go for it. Nobody should judge you for that. Which like I kind of fuck with, you know. Like, it's up to it's like up to everyone. You probably already told me this, but like, what time period is this? It's the fifties. Okay, I was gonna say that in sounds very like hippies movement, but 
Yeah, it, he's, like, he's ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time then, and then he started leaning into it. And, like, because everybody was, like, going to India during that time to, like, get guru ship because they were all, like, spiritually blocked and they had a lot mm-hmm. of money. They, they like... love play experiences. Yeah. Well, Eat and it was also, love. like, the the Beatles and stuff were going. So it's basically, like, Dixie D'Amelia going now. So, like, everyone that had a little <laughs> bit of money was, like, let's go to India because... Uh-huh. Yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Like, the popular people are doing it. So he saw that, like, his teachings, his lifestyle, and the meditation practices that he put out there, which was, like, basically all he had because he didn't have, like, doctrine. Um, He was, like, he saw it as a product, and it could support not only him, but, like, the other people within his communities or ashrams. Um, And he had them, like, all over the world at one point, like international. It was like an international federation. Um, And he thought that like all of the other like Indian spiritual movements had failed because they weren't capitalistic. And so he's like, I can create the perfect capitalism, which like doesn't exist. Amen, Uh, sister. And like, if you look, if you watch some of his like meditations that he has, like there's different ones. I didn't go like fully into that because that was like a deep dive I'm not prepared to do. I'm not emotionally prepared to do this week. (laughs) But, like, in the Netflix documentary, uh, Wild Wild Country, about this whole thing, um, they show some of it. And it's just, like, crazy, like, people raging and, like, freaking out. Like, it's like a mosh pit. Like, they're just body slamming each other and, like, crying and screaming. And it's, like, the whole thought that you're, like, letting all of your emotion out. Whereas, like, normally you wouldn't be able to do that. And so people, they flock to it. They're, like... Yeah, we're like emotionally blocked. We need to go out here and <laughs> rage. Like, you know, this was before this was before metal music. Like they this didn't is have how you got outlet. rid of your aggression in the 1950s. You yeah. beat your wife or you went this route. So or you just medicated with morphine. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, as he's going along into like the 60s and the 70s, he He's gathering more followers, and he have he has, like, this group of followers that, like, love him. They love his teachings because he's giving this, them this release that, like, they otherwise would not have. So they're, like, pretty much willing to do whatever to follow him. Um, and that kind of becomes a problem later. But, like, mostly at the beginning, it's, like, he wants these, like, middle-aged people with some money. You know, they're, they're bringing money in. They can afford to travel. They're coming from the West. They're coming from Australia. You know, they're coming from the U.S. And they're coming in, bringing this money, but they're also getting, like, kind of shitty jobs. <laughs> He's like, okay, well, you know, you're a banker. Well, you know, I have 700 bankers, so you're going to clean toilets. And they were happy to because it was, like, otherwise I wouldn't be having this experience. He started to really amass a group of people that were, like, city planners that were, like, educated people. And that's where he started to, like, build his – really build his foundation. Before he just had, like, followers. He's, like, living in an apartment. He started to build his foundation off of these Western people coming in that had education, that had money, um, and could help him kind of, you know, make it bigger, the expand to go out to other places. You know, he had lawyers and shit. But, like, with all this wealth, like, he was also, like, becoming more indulgent. He was indulging in his luxuries. Like, he was buying – watches and robes and Rolls Royces. He had like 20 Rolls Royces at one point. <laughs> Can you imagine? That it's like 
I don't know if you watch the H3 podcast or Frenemies. Yeah. But Ethan and Trisha just got matching Rolls Royces and it's like the most iconic thing on the planet. But imagine having 20. 20 Rolls Royces. And it's like, for, for what? For what, sis? Like, why do so you So you can 20? have your own parade? I guess. So the other quirky thing about this community this movement was that everybody had to wear red orange pink or purple so like it was very monochromatic um i think a lot of like the eastern religions do like they wear a lot of those colors and then he's like but that way everyone will know who we are when we go somewhere like was it like the colors they all decided one day like on fridays we're gonna wear pink or was it like the class system within do you i don't know if that was ever I don't, I think it was just like, they're spiritually important colors to the East. And so mm-hmm. he was like, these are the colors we need to wear. And, you know, we're going to stick to these and you're going to be my followers. Gotcha. Like, we're very serious about this. Um, I guess it's like Mormons wearing white at Temple. Mm-hmm. But like, they wore them all the time. Like, in okay. public. So kind of like Handmaid's Tale where... Like, the upper class people is where... I guess, again, we don't know if it was delineated by class or not, but... I don't think it was. Yeah, it's just the colors that they were allowed to wear. Yeah. They're just restricted to a color palette. And, like, they had, like, rooms full of clothes that you just, like, go in and pick stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was, like, you know... I I think it was one of those where, like, you... And I'm not entirely sure where, like, you didn't really own your clothes, that the the commune owned the clothes, and you just, like... community closet... Yeah. Like, but he himself, he kind of lacked business sense. Like, he was, like I said, he was indulgent. He, as soon as he had money, he spent it. So, um, it's when Ma Anand Sheila comes into the picture that, like, it really starts to take off and, like, grow. Cause, like, his followers before, like, they were kind of limited, but, like, Ma Anand Sheila, or, like, her real name is Sheila Amblal Patel. Um, she's, like, this young woman and she was first introduced to him through her parents and they, like, brought her into um brought her into one of his teachings and she was like instantly smitten she's like this man is like perfect he's he's fine like it was just like kind of weird to hear her describe it <laughs> like and she was a teenager at this point she's just like oh yeah like he's great so she like she's smitten with him but then her parents send her off to the u.s to go to college and so she goes to college and she kind of goes back and forth um, between india and the u.s eventually she marries an american man um and he has like hodgkins so he's kind of sickly and then he's like you know i really want to go to india to like experience your culture i want to get in with like you know spiritualism and she's like man do i have the guru for you so they go back (laughs) and they go back in 1972, so at this point it is the 70s, and uh, she gets back in the presence of Bhagwan, and she's like, oh my god, like, I forgot how fine this guy is. And he saw her, and he's like... Daddy Bhagwan. That, I mean, they loved him. <laughs> Everybody loved him, and I don't understand it. I mean, he's an attractive enough guy, but like... He's also, like you said, he's the guy that is barefoot on campus. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of strange. This story, okay, it's like tickling something in my memory. I'm pretty sure at one point, um, so for anyone that's listening that's not me and Ashley, which at this point is no one, hopefully it'll be other people. Anyway, I live 
grew up in like a very small town. In that small town, we used to have a military academy that's now like a bunch of like decrepit buildings. And I have a feeling, and I don't know if it was this cult or a similar one, that these people came to my small town back in the day looking to like purchase that property. I'm going to text my mom and hopefully by the end of your story, you will have an answer what cult that was. But I have a feeling they tried to acquire that military academy and move in there. So if that's the case, this is a very apt first story to pick because I've got hometown connections there. Anyway, continue. Sorry, I'm going to text my mom and we'll see if we can get an answer from her. I mean, it makes sense because like they're still followers. And like after all of this kind of happened, he became to be known as Osho. And like people still follow him. People still do his meditations. It's not like quite the free love. Mm-hmm. Um, like not too crazy but like i mean it could have been even as recently as you know like the 80s and 90s that they were building communities mm-hmm. um so kind of back to sheila she's like this dude fine uh <laughs> and he he sees her he sees like what an intelligent woman she is he sees she's got charisma she's got star power basically and he kind of grooms her because she's still a young woman at this point. I mean, she's young. She's married. She got a, She's out of college, but she's young. And he's like, I can use her. So, um, like, he does stuff like tests her with tasks and gives her special secret things and, like, to make sure that she's not going to rat him out. And then, like, he was doing shit, like, at events. He'd be like, he'd, like, bless her and he'd be like, I love you and you love me. Like, just real manipulative soft boy shit. so he eventually like makes her his like assistant secretary and like his secretary was like the one who ran him like ran his schedule who planned all his stuff and there was like another lady that was there during that time who was like his head secretary but like she's not as important to the story um so like a bit later sheila's husband dies they say it's because of his illness but it's like kind of shady they're just like oh yeah he he died and I, I couldn't cry while he was dying because I didn't want his spirit to like stay here. Not that I'm like shitting on anybody's mm-hmm. beliefs, but it was just like also it was kind of seemed like she just wanted him gone. Yeah. So um, and like there's some talk online that she like allegedly killed him via injection. Mm. So which given her later track record, I believe. So at this point, she marries another follower. She stays on, in India at the ashram in Pune. Um, and she starts, like, developing these ideas. Like, um, they needed money to float, um, like, improvements to the ashram. So she, like, opens a bank so that they could, like, use the money, like a bank, to, like, pay for it. And she's like, we, were, we had hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, she turned it into a real profitable business, whereas before it was just, like, the idea of a profitable business. Um, so around 1981, Bhagwan asked her to be his head secretary, got rid of the other chick, and he's basically like, hey, Sheila, um, I need to get out of the country. Like, his health was kind of bad, and where they were was not good for him, and he's, like, also looking, like, at that point, they were kind of getting in trouble with the local government, the Indian government, so he's like, we need, we need to find somewhere else. He's like, where do you think we should go? And she's like, well, the U.S. sounds good, and... The Like, the other people in the commune were already like, yeah, we need to go to the U.S. because they have, like, ridiculous religious freedom laws. And so he's like, yes. Because, like, there <laughs> were... <laughs> but he, he, like, 
made her seem like it was her idea, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, the other people were already, like, pushing him to do this. But anyways, so, and they're, like, they, they wouldn't be taxed if they were a religious organization. Because, like, they were, they had back taxes and they were getting mm-hmm. chased for that. So he's, like, we got to get out of here. So she, she starts looking around the U.S., and um, she finds this 64,000-acre ranch that's basically a wasteland. Like, it's not usable, really, unless you do some major work to it in Oregon. Um, and it's, like, this small, close-knit town. It's called Antelope. It's in Wasco County. Um, and it just gives real big Make America Great Again vibes. <sighs> like, the, the town... The, the ranch is outside the town, but the town, the closest town, it's 50 people. They're all, like, retired white working age people. Like, this is the first time they've been able to afford a house. So, like, they're fairly impoverished mm-hmm. and not the most educated. And they're just, like, I mean, I get it. It's, like, their own little slice of heaven or whatever. But they're also just kind of, like, being very possessive of this. And then there's also, like, some rancher barons that own, like, thousands of and hundreds of thousands of acres out there that, like, have been there forever. Including one that, like, his dad was the co-founder of Nike. So, like, sketch. Yeah. The fuck is he doing out there? He has money to start his own commune. Yeah. But apparently, I mean, that... Look at Kanye. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking crazy. Can you imagine if he had won the presidency? Oh, my God. (laughs) We would be fucking doomed. Those nukes would be so far off of our soil. They would just be... He'd probably be like, let's let's nuke Mars. That seems like a logical, rational thing to do. Just mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Exactly. Just just Kanye things. Just millennial (laughs) vibes. I wonder if Kim would have stayed married to him if he was president. I think so. I think it was just really like the next step. That's like probably mm-hmm. where Chris was pushing him. She's like, we need the presidency. And once he didn't get the presidency, she's like, I'm going to drop this guy. Next thing well, we know, she's going to be coming after Jill and she's going to marry Joe. <laughs> well, don't you think that like this whole thing behind Kim becoming uh, like a lawyer is like so that they can push her into politics? Oh, my God. Okay, so I don't know why that never occurred to me until just now, but uh, can you imagine? I mean, I guess Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California, so, like, strange things do happen. But, well, and oh Matthew, God, McConaughey can you imagine? Running, Matthew McConaughey is running for governor of Texas. Or he, like, all he right, wants all to. All right, all right, I'd kick it behind that. It might finally turn Texas blue. Why do I find... For some reason, like, the idea of Kim Kardashian being in politics completely absurd. But when it comes to Matthew McConaughey, I'm like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> oh, jeez. Anyways, so <laughs> back to the topic. Um, So we're in this this small town of Antelope. Um, and more and more of these Rajneeshis start piling in. And they start expanding the the ranch into, like, living quarters. And they start building stuff. Um, and then they, like, apparently in the U.S., if maybe in certain states, but here, you can just vote to incorporate your 
whatever into a city if you have enough votes. So that's what they did. And they incorporated it into a city called Rajneeshpuram. Um, and so that's the ranch. And yeah. So they they wanted to become a city because they needed to have like the building permits um, and they want to be able to govern themselves like they didn't want mm-hmm. outsiders coming in trying to tell them how to live their lives because again it's very much about freedom and like it was governance within the commune like people that were not good people would not be allowed to stay there um, but that was like up to basically like Bhagwan to decide or some of the other leaders to decide and they would just like kick people out. So, like, they started, they started really, after they incorporated, they started building more. And they, like, built more housing. They put in, like, a shopping center, like, a boutique, a bank, restaurants. Um, they put in a private airport, a dam, um, and, like, massive um, community halls for meditation. How many, you probably said this already, but how many people were there? Um, at this point, I think it was, like, a couple thousand. Okay. Damn. Like it was a, it That's was impressive. big. Like, obviously they that started TikTok out small. TikTok commune could never. No, <laughs> not. I mean, unless they start getting followers mm. off of TikTok, which kind of seems that's what they want to do. Oh yikes! So that's why I'm like, this is a cautionary tale about like mm-hmm. media heavy cults. Um. So like they became, they took this like wasteland and they made it farmland. They like with the dam and they did like intelligent farming because they had a ton of people that were like used to being city works. People were used to being like, you know, engineers that could engineer this shit so they could become like totally self-sufficient. So after like, they kind of get it set up, they get a bunch of followers already there. In comes the Bhagwan. He comes in and is Rolls Royce and he's just like, Hey, yo, I'm here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's like, he's like, I'm here. And that pisses the locals off. Like, these are people that just could afford a house at retirement Mm -hmm. age. And, like, I get that, like, they were, they had animosity and, like, they were jealous because they weren't used to that kind of luxury. And, like, the Rajneeshis, you know, they're all educated people. They all have money. They all have nice clothes. Like, yeah, it's like a communal clothing. But, like, they had nice shoes. They had well, like, they were well-dressed. So these locals, they, like, they start spinning these yarns about, like, how the Rajneeshis were trying to hypnotize them. And they had, like, this look. And so, like, the locals had to cross their arms or else they were going to get hypnotized and, like, converted to the cult. Um, and, I mean, these people were, like, hounding in the press about, like, these people's free loving is bringing down the sacred institution of marriage in America. <laughs> and it was just, like, I mean, it was, they're very conservative old uh-huh. white people. As I say, like, part of it is because this group is crazy, but I'm sure part of that attitude was also just because... Xenophobia. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, like... A little bit of racism just sprinkled in there. Although... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, although... I feel like where the story is going, maybe a little bit of hatred thrown their way. Not the race, race kind, but just, like, on a personal level might be warranted but like so like the other thing was is that they were really shaken about the recent jonestown incident which was fairly recent then at this point um and so they're like being hyper vigilant too they're like really keeping an eye and like the press came in um and then once like the christians got a hold of that 
it became a really big problem. And that's when they really started getting labeled not as a spiritual movement, not as commune, but as a cult. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is a cult. And they're bringing in, like, this is when they start bringing in all of these cult experts out of the woodwork, which, you know, I guess they had to have them for, like, the Jonestown incident. But, like, they start bringing in all these cult experts who are like, yes, this is a cult. And then um, the other thing is that with the locals is that they started threatening legal action because they didn't want the ranch turned into a city. And, like, both of us coming from, like, rural towns, like, we've seen that where, like, people in the community get really pissed off when their farmland aesthetic is threatened and they're, Mm -hmm. like, like people trying to bring in solar panels. Like I remember that was a huge fight out by my parents' house where like they people wanted to bring in solar panels and have like a solar farm and like mm-hmm. everybody rallied against it. And we're like, no, like we're out here to see farmland. We're not out here to see f- solar panels. Also, solar panels make the frogs gay. I'm sorry, but cornfields are not that pretty or exciting. We can get a little renewable energy, get some solar panels like, Come on, Karen. Well, and also, no one like, needs to see another soybean field. Nobody. Don't they realize that like their energy bills would go down if we had a solar farm? Mm-hmm. My dad, he installed a bunch of solar panels on the side of his barn, and he's like balling out. He can run those grain elevators all day, all night. <laughs> my, I think uh, my dad's gonna put in some like windmills. He wants to put in windmills. I love that for him. He's like, right, I'm okay. gonna. I'm going to shout out to our parents because for having grown up, grown up in like a very conservative rural area, they're like, they're woke. Might I, yes, I was going to say they're pretty woke. They're like down with the renewable energy. Man, love them. Our parents are gems. Even my mom, who's like, she's a Republican in that she's not a Republican. Mm-hmm. She's, she's a Democrat. Like, yeah. She, but she's, she's voted Republican her whole life, so she's just attached to the title. Well, she loves Daddy Ronald Reagan, which, ooh, yeah. Well. She did say, she did growth, she did say <laughs> the other day, Ronald Reagan didn't always do good stuff. And I was like, for that to Mama. come from you, <laughs> you can admit that Ronald Reagan was wrong, like on mm-hmm. almost everything, but growth, Mama. Love to see it. I mean, this is very much the vibe that these people have. They even get, like, a local – in the commune, they get this, like, local bullshit foundation called a Thousand Friends of Oregon to claim that it, like, wasn't the proper land use, that it was, like, going to ruin the whole aesthetic. Um, it wasn't zoned for city life. It wasn't zoned for manufacturing. Like, it was going to bring down property values. You know, the basic, like, scared white people thing mm-hmm. who, like – will gentrify a city but then when it kind of starts happening to them they're like whoa 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 whoa, wait what yeah back it up (laughs) so they like get in touch with attorneys and they um they like really start going after them and they also go after them for like not getting proper permits ordinances which like they were their own town so it's like really they can do whatever they want Mm -hmm. and like the rajneeshis were trying to do everything Kind of with loopholes, but as legally as they could, because they didn't want to bring like negative light to the the community. They didn't want the news coming after them. They didn't want legal trouble. They had a whole team of lawyers, but like they still were like, we don't want to have to use them. Mm-hmm. So Sheila, at this point, she's tired of everyone's shit. She's like, I'm tired of these racist motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> I'm over it. 
And she is, she's definitely an assertive person. Like, did she do some really shitty stuff? Yes. But was she also kind of a, like, girl boss queen? Also, yes. A little bit, yeah. It sounds like she was almost running the whole show. Like, oh, she sure was. you had, yeah, you had, like, your little dude in his Roy- Rolls Royce, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'm going to butcher it. But then you had <laughs> Sheila. And Sheila is getting shit done. Good or bad, she's doing it. No, she, pretty Bless much her. any request that he has, she does it. It doesn't matter how ridiculous she's, because she's a loyal follower. And he mm-hmm. knows that. He's like, she'll get it done. She's like, I'll get it done. Don't worry. Like, just, I mean, typically really a, a typical woman professional. She's just like, okay, I'll just, I'll get it done. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So she hatches this plan. And she's like, okay, well, they're being really shitty to us. The town of Antelope is. So she's like, why don't we just take over the town? So they go in, they start buying like available properties. And these houses, our houses are worth like, you know, like $30,000, $50,000, not terribly expensive houses, like empty lots, vacant lots. Um, and so she starts buying up all these properties. And like they eventually buy like the cafe in town, which it had like a cafe, to, only a cafe to start with as like their only shop. Um, and sure, her ultimate goal was that by holding this town kind of hostage, not really though, because the locals could do whatever they wanted, mm-hmm. um, that she was like, had this bargaining chip with the state government to grant uh, the Rajneeshpuram, the the ranch, um, a zoning change so they could become their own like city. Because like, they had to put in a ton of like infrastructure. They had to put in like electric, sewage, everything, water. I mean, obviously they built a dam to give them water, but like they were, they were doing work out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they took over the town. They, like, won a council meeting, um, with only, like, one other local resident in the council, and his name is John Silvertooth, and a manipulative king whose thought process was, you get more information by being nice. (laughs) He's like, I'm gonna be nice to these people. I'm gonna close to him. He's like, I'm gonna keep my enemies close. Which, (laughs) like, for the area, unreasonably smart. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) No one else could ever. Um, and also this time, the Rajneeshis, they send people to the, like, Oregon Police Academy, and they start building, like, their own police force, which started scaring people because it gave them access to weapons and munitions that they would not otherwise have. Um, so out in the media, you know, they're calling this place a cult. People are becoming really wary of it. Sheila's like, all right, second head of this attack. I have to go out. She has to go on a national television and be, like, the PR person. And, like, she has to talk about, like, how they're being persecuted um, and how the locals, a bunch of uneducated hicks, like, just misunderstood them. They weren't doing anything wrong. They're just living there. They're really just being xenophobic for, like, no goddamn reason. (laughs) But she was also, like, charismatic and provocative and just outrageous. Like, they described it as, like, her just giving the networks and the people, like, the middle finger and um, she's also, like, saying, like, oh, like, if you want this, you should come here, which was also helping to, like, recruit. So it was, like, kind of mm-hmm. a twofold thing on that. Um, and they ended, like, they ended up being able to bring in more and more people to where they could have, like, the World Festival at Rajneeshpuram, where also, like, people from all around the world, all their other ashrams would come in. And, like, it was, like, you know, uh, what's the thing in the desert? The the concert. <laughs> Oh, Burning Man? Yeah, it was like Burning Man. Okay. Like, it was fun. They had, you know, they had vendors. They had a bunch of stuff. 
Um, Burning Man or Coachella? Either or. What? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, it, large. I mean, there's a lot of people probably naked. I'm sure that okay. people were probably on drugs. But mm. yeah, they weren't really. definitely go either way. Yeah. I mean, they were Charles really... is there. He has his ass out. Yeah. But he's wearing yeah. red. He oh, has to wear red. Well, yeah. Yeah, of course. Assless chaps, but they're red. <laughs> this stuff really, really pissed off the locals. Like, they were already hostile. They straight up became violent. Mm-hmm. Um, They didn't want the Rajneeshis there. Not afraid to show it. They start, like... And it wasn't just during the World Festivals, but, like, all the time. They started doing, like, bumper stickers and, like, shirts and posters and flyers where it said, like, bag the Bhagwan. Um, and, like, not wanted dead or alive with, like, the picture of the Bhagwan. And, like... Uh, better dead than red. Like, <laughs> just, like, as creative as you would expect that type of person. Um, just real racist, like, white trash bullying shit. Mm-hmm. The highly armed local rednecks were rolling around. You know, they had their guns in the back of their trucks. Um, they started, like, going after them violently. They, like, had the Rajneeshis had a hotel in Portland for their people. Because it was, like, I guess close to the airport out there, whatever. The rednecks went out and they, like, vandalized the hotel. They, like, shot out the windows on it. They bombed it at one point and a couple people got hurt. Um, And they were just, like, doing interviews with the media and they're, like, really creating this culture of, like, negativity where they're, like, if they get shot, they deserve it because they're asking for it. It's, like, come on. But, like, also the Rajneeshis were kind of trolling them because they're doing weird shit like shining spotlights into their houses. Mm-hmm. And, like, videotaping them. Like, oh, basically. Ew. But it's, like, basically the equivalent of, like, videotaping them so you have evidence if they do go after you. So mm-hmm. it's, like, not really any different than, like, those videos of, like, Karens attacking people and them. Yeah. Being, okay, go ahead. Like, whatever you got to say, say it to the camera. <laughs> so this kind of went on for a few years. And, like, the Rajneeshi thing obviously wasn't going away. It was growing. So that council guy from earlier, John Silvertooth, um, one day, he's like, he's out of the dump. He's looking through the trash because I guess that's what people do. Just digging through the trash and he finds some stuff from the Rajneeshi commune and he's like, oh, this looks interesting. So he finds some documents that say, like, please shred. And he's like, oh, this is very interesting. So he starts looking through it and he finds stuff um, – like, just incriminating stuff, getting a lot of information. Um, there was stuff in there about, like, them censoring mail and, like, what people could say. And it was, like, meeting minutes um, going mm-hmm. over just, like, stuff that they wanted to accomplish. They're talking about, like, arranged marriages. No, it wasn't arranged marriages like Warren Jeff's arranged marriages. It was, like, marriages of convenience. Because, like, again, they believed in free love. Like, whatever you wanted to do in your marriage, you could do whatever. So it was, like a convenience like immigration marriage so that mm-hmm. people that weren't from the U.S. could stay in the U.S. because they were married to people, but right. like then they would really have nothing to do with each other. Um, and that's what kind of first started to really get them in trouble. Um, so this guy, John Silvertooth, he takes all of this information to the Attorney General of Oregon, Dave Fronmeyer, and he's like, let's get these people. Um, so that's when the conversation about not having an appropriate constitutional separation of church and state really starts to come out but it's also like you look at like utah and like boston and you're gonna tell me that like in utah the mormons and like in boston the catholic church like don't have anything to do with the government like 
Mm-mm. Even like those FLDS communes, a lot of like the men from those communities work in like the local police force of like the general public. So, you know, they've got like a little bit of something going on there. Well, and like uh, a lot of like fundamentalists, like the Duggars and stuff, mm-hmm. like all those people are like senators. The Oregon legislature, they go through this whole like dog of dog and pony show of like introducing these bills trying to repeal like the city charters of Rajneesh Param and Rajneesh Antelope um and like going as far as like trying to put out bills where it's like banishing the cult from Oregon um and like obviously at this point because of Jonestown which had only happened a few years before uh the federal government's keeping an eye on them um but it was definitely like spearheaded by the local government that's like we need to take these out like they are threatening our rights as god-fearing americans they're threatening our children <laughs> and i mean like the rajneeshis were i mean like i said they were trolling they were doing stuff like they set up a public park for nude sunbathing it's like it's a it's a community of 50 old white people yeah what what does it matter to you so this goes back and forth in the rajneeshis sheila really um, they had to like come up with solutions. So there's like an upcoming election and Sheila's like, all right, we know that we probably can't win out right, but we need to, we need to get Rajneeshi people into the local government. You know, we need to take over this County of Wasco. So their first idea is that they're going to bus in thousands of homeless people of like people that are impoverished and like bring them in and like register them to vote they're going to do in enough time that they can register to vote and like then and now oregon is one of the easiest states to like prove your residency to i think you only have to like live there for 20 days before you can register to vote so they start like busing in this homeless people they start i mean they like feed them they give them medical attention you know dental stuff like they house them so of course these homeless people are like yeah we'll vote for you whatever they're like they're bringing them in the beer cats get pissed and they're just like (laughs) oh no so the as the homeless people are coming in to register to vote they're just like you can't do that we've decided that this is a hostile takeover of our rights so like basically voter suppression but it's like also the rajneeshis were not obviously great but like you you can't just do that you can't just be like Mm -hmm. uh this law that we have we don't like it so so after that, Sheila's like, shit, like that was a good plan. So she's like, all right, I got a, I got one even better. So she starts getting, she starts getting violent back. So um, sh- that's when she kind of starts planning the bioterror attack, the Rajneeshi bioterror attack, which is the largest bioterror attack in U.S. history. Basically, she had the problem of the people in the county. They knew they couldn't overtake the county. There was too many people in the county the outnumbered the Rajneeshis. Um, she needed to find a way to intimidate the voters. She needed to find a way to like, she wanted to get rid of them basically. So what they did is they built a laboratory on their property. They started cultivating salmonella in like a liquid slurry. Um, the Rajneeshi followers would take the baggies of this liquid that they called salsa to like salsa bars, to Ew. like places that had like salad bars. Yeah, this is disgusting. Um, in the largest city in their county, which was called the Dales, 
And so they would just dump it and they would dump it like on the produce at the salad bars and stuff. And like they were trying to dump it on the produce at grocery stores too, but like I guess that didn't really work. And then like a, they also had a plan to poison the water supply with it, but like I guess that didn't work because like by the time it like where they could contaminate it by the time it went through treatment, it just would have gotten rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um so like with the intent that the locals would be too ill to vote. And it would also scare them into not voting, like, oh, this is what they've done before. Like, what are they going to do after? Um, They also poisoned, like, two officials with water. Like, when they came to visit the compound, they're like, oh, here's some water. And they, like, put the salmonella in it. So those people got really sick. Um, And they also had a few, like, assassination plots that failed. But, like, they they definitely planned it. Goddamn, Sheila. (laughs) She's just like, no. We got to do it. I mean, she was she was a results oriented person. Or she is. Mm-hmm. She's still alive. Results really? oriented person. Prison? No, she lives in Switzerland. She has the fuck. She like opened nursing homes in Switzerland, which like. Okay, so <laughs> there's a movie on Netflix called "I Care a Lot." We just watched it a couple nights ago. She. I cannot. Okay, if you feel like watching it the woman that's the main character in that movie very much gives me sheila vibes especially with the nursing home bit anyone that's watched that will know what i'm talking about did you watch it i didn't but like i watched the preview for it and Mm -hmm. i was like emotionally i cannot handle this oh you for sure like want to murder everyone pretty much in that film except for the old lady who is pretty great i won't spoil anything but it is a pretty good movie but you will will be in a rage through most of it. Yeah, she she opened like nursing homes. I think they were like really nice, compassionate places because I she I think her murder spree was over by then. But mm, we hope. I mean, I I don't know for sure. I didn't go too much into that because I was just like I I need to know where she is. I need to know she's okay. Wait, and I'm sorry. You, again, you probably said this already. What was her nationality to begin with? She was Indian. Yeah, okay. she was born okay. in India. She came. She like came to the U.S. for school, but she went back and forth. Gotcha. So, like, all in all, from this, 751 people contracted salmonal, what is it, salmonellosis, salmonellosis, and 45 of whom were hospitalized, um, the oldest being, like, over 90, the youngest being, like, a two-day-old baby that contracted it from their mother, and, like, the baby lived, but they were given, like, a 5% chance. Oh, my God. I want to meet that baby, interview that person. Like, do you remember when you were a <laughs> tiny old. baby? Yeah. <laughs> a newborn? You almost died. Um, and luckily, <laughs> nobody died from this. Like, nobody By died. By some miracle, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then it was like the the Oregon Health Department and the CDC were like, well, we think it might have been deliberate. But they publicly put out, like, oh, it was just poor food handling. Like, we just need to train our employees better. But it's, like, they they knew that something was going on because usually in cases of salmonella poisoning, the the people that are the, – the patrons will get it before the employees. And a lot of these cases, the employees were getting it first. On top of that, on February 28, 1985, Oregon Congressman James H. Weaver – gave this rambling, incoherent speech to the U.S. House of Representatives that accused the Rajneeshis of poisoning his constituents, which they did, to be fair. But it was just, like, very – it was rambling. 
it was like not good and everybody's like you're an idiot like go lay down go lay down grandpa right like they just didn't think it was credible because of the way he presented yeah. it you think yeah his delivery and also it's like oregon and people like no offense to anybody that lives in oregon but like the conservative parts of oregon they're just like it, it was basically like when marjorie taylor green goes out and starts spatting her shit and they're like okay mm-hmm. like get out of here so like at this time like you got to feel bad for the restaurants because it was like nobody wanted to go out to eat the restaurants had to close they had to like clean everything trash everything they had employees that were out on like quarantine that were sick like it took a lot of money out of their pockets um and at this time because the rajneeshis could not use the homeless people they started just like dumping them in the dales like they just were like here you go like so like there was homeless people around like people in the news are like lock your doors there's a bunch of homeless you know homeless invasion of our city um despite this like fear that had been generated non-rajneeshi residents of wasco county they turn out in droves because they're like we can't let this take over so it really rendered their plan ineffectual you know a bunch of people got sick for nothing we're gonna check back in with bhagwan so around this time because he's just been silent like sheila's been out she's been running the show he's been like i'm the spiritual leader he makes some appearances you know but other than that he's like he talks with sheila you know they they have a thing going on but he's not really he's not in the public eye so he starts getting in with a group that they called the hollywood crowd and these people are rich like the leader of the hollywood crowd her name was Francoise Rudy, Rudy, um, but she, they later called her Ma Anan Hasya, and she was the ex-wife of Hollywood producer of The Godfather, uh, Al Ruddy. And they, like, entice him, and they like, oh, let's buy you a mansion. Let's give you these watches. Let's give you this jewelry. Um, and, like, they have these extravagant parties where they, like, recruit people. Um, and they're, like, recruiting these people to just bleed them of their money. Like, these people are spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars apiece to send to Bhagwan to help support the the lifestyle, the commune, whatever. So, um, he also was kind of running into some legal trouble. So, he had been, like, approved and denied for visas off and on. And there's, like, a lot of legal trouble going on. And his lawyers were like, well, he's a spiritual leader. He needs to have, like, a religious leader visa. And eventually, they got it. But, like... It was just a whole weird situation with that. Like, they were trying to get rid of them, so they are trying to do it as legally as they could, and it was determined they couldn't really do that. Um, so, like, because of all this, Bhagwan kind of started to pull away from Sheila. He's got these fancy new friends. Like, they're giving him money. Um, he, he has these legal troubles, doesn't really, you know, working through this. And he's already, like, a sick man. Like, he, he was a sickly kind of man. Mm-hmm. Like, even Sheila says, like, he was frail. He was, like, kind of fragile. And he starts to get, like, in the discussions that he does have with her, he starts to get, like, paranoid where he's talking about, like, doomsday scenarios that, like, everyone else is going to die and that the Rajneeshis would, like, go into underground bunkers and survive. Um, And it was at this point that Sheila discovered that the doctor the Hollywood crowd had appointed to him, um, Swami Devaraj, his real name was George Meredith. Um, And he was also married to Hasya, Manan Hasya. like, because she had divorced her other husband and married him. But the the doctor was prescribing him recreational drugs like laughing gas and Valium. So, like, he was just 
he was high all the time. And that pissed her off. Oh, she was furious. So this bitch, you know, she's results-oriented. She starts scheming. So she, like, burns down the Wasco County planning office. I think this has to do with more of the stuff that happened before. But she's like, no, this is this is the time to commit arson. She wiretaps um, Bagwan's office and home and records all of his conversations, all of his phone conversations. Um, and she planned the assassination of Devaraj, the doctor, with Jane Stork, or as they called her, Mashanti B. Jane's like, of course. Because at this point, like, Sheila's starting to generate this following of people um, that, like, I mean, they're all loyal to Bhagwan, but she, like, she starts having her inner circle. And, like, she's really the brains behind the operation, so, like, a lot of the people are going with her. Not just because of the drugs, but also due to the wiretapping, they found out the Devaraj and the Bhagwan were planning to have the Bhagwan commit suicide. And basically, because it, like, I, it was, like, just because of his health or no it was because more of like first of all the drugs yeah that that explains a lot of it (laughs) (laughs) secondly like i mean he was having all this legal trouble like the feds were coming after him they're like kind of closing in you know they have this bioterror attack i think at this point had not been had not been discovered that it was due to them but like they knew people knew that they had done it so he's like i'm just gonna die i'm gonna become like a martyr for the movement and then like trying to do like the whole nothing against Christians, but doing the whole Jesus thing where he's like, mm-hmm. you know, I died for you. Um, but also he's like on heavy drugs all the time. So it's just like, how clearly are you thinking, bud? So they, they come up with the idea to do it painlessly. So they do like by injection. So mm-hmm. they have like, it's like a three shot thing. So you get morphine to sedate you, cure or to paralyze you. And then you get another shot to actually stop your heart. Um, so like they get the meds and this is all what Sheila finds out through the wiretapping. They get the meds, they're ready to go. Um, the Bhagwan instructs Sheila to create this huge crematorium. That's just like a monstrosity of modern art. So like a great place for him to be cremated. Sheila and Jane, they're like, we got to stop this guy. So Jane's like, all right, I'm going to do it. She goes, she picks out her outfit. She's got to get something with a pocket so she can put the drugs in it. They're going to kill Devaraj by injection, because, like, he's going to take up the Bhagwan. That's their leader. Can't have that. So Jane goes out. They're having, like, a a get-together, a meditation, whatever. She goes up to him, and she, like, whispers in his ear. And at the same time, she jabs him in the ass with a syringe (laughs) and, like, injects him. And there's, like, a little bit of a struggle. And then she, like, pulls it out and puts it back in her pocket. And he's, like, and she's, like, what's wrong? What happened? What's wrong with you? Just, like psychopath also love her um she's like what's wrong buddy what's wrong and she just like walks off and leaves him there like he passes out so after this sheila jane and like their crowd are like all right we're we're in hot water we gotta go so they decide to flee they charter a private jet they go to germany they know, like, the feds are kind of after them because there's also, like, money laundering and all of this with, like, the banks that they had set up. Mm-hmm. So, like, Sheila's smart. Like, she's, like, a rat in a boat. She's, like, I got to get out now. So they they fly off to Germany. They don't come back. This pisses Bogwan off. He's, like, oh. Like, he had this ownership over them. He's, like, you do not leave me. He starts this huge smear campaign. He invites the press in to Rajneesh Param. 
which he hadn't done for a long time. Like he had been silent in the media and he starts going off about how Sheila planned the bioterror attacks and she attempted to murder people and he was willing to cooperate with the authorities. Um, but he also like sent assassins to try to take them out. Um, and then the other thing is like, he was going around to like, not Maury, but like Maury type things. And he's like, mm-hmm. well, Sheila wanted to, she wanted to sleep with me and I made it a point to never sleep with his secretary. Like, thank you for doing the bare minimum. Like, <laughs> yeah. You did better than Bill Clinton. I mean, <laughs> I guess the U S government, they build the case against Sheila and she was extradited for attempted murder in 1986. Um, back to the U.S., and she ended up being convicted of first-degree assault and conspiracy to commit assault, second-degree assault and conspiracy to commit assault. Um, She pleaded guilty to the arson and the wiretapping. Um, She was convicted of 20 years in a federal prison, and she was fined $470,000. But she had good behavior. Like, she's a well-behaved person. She's Mm -hmm. she's kind of a pick-me girl. She she only served like 38 months and then she immediately goes to Switzerland. Switzerland. She marries some guy. He dies of AIDS shortly after. And then she starts the nursing homes and, you know, that's where she is today. She's just fucking around Switzerland. That's kind of incredible that you can get convicted for 20 years and then on good behavior be released after 38 months. Well, I mean, that is overpopulation. Overpopulation of prisons and... They don't want women. It's a prison industrial system. They Mm. want men. That's crazy. And, like, then the fact... I guess she's in a different country, so how do they stop her? But the fact that she's able to, like, go and operate businesses is fucking crazy. Especially businesses like a nursing home where you have the care of other people. Yeah. But you literally tried to poison an entire town. That's (laughs) fucking wild. And it wasn't... Like, I think it was... It was definitely centered around the city, but she tried to poison more people. So she, yeah. Wow. Like attempted murder. And then she's just off running a nursing home. Oh my God. What a crazy, crazy bitch. (laughs) I, you know, crazy. Yes. Did she do some really bad shit? Yes. But like, I kind of admire her. Like she got shit done. It's true. She's like Trisha Paytas where she's done some questionable shit, but she like, is out there living her best life and like making music videos and just go off, go off Sheila, except for we don't like Sheila. And we, I, I love Trisha. So. <laughs> I mean, I like Sheila, but they're also, both like, like crazy. Yeah. Like, also, if you haven't watched the documentary wild, wild country on Netflix. You definitely have to. Cause it's about this. Okay. Um, it's like six hours long, but eh. it's, what else do it's I have good. To do? Yeah, <laughs> right now, nothing. So after putting Sheila on the line for all the things that she did in his name, um, Bhagwan was also like, I think at that point he had like a moment of clarity and he's like, I need to get out of here too. Like he <laughs> he incriminated Sheila, but he also incriminated himself. And he's like, I got to go. And so he hatches his half-baked plan to fly off to Bermuda. And so he charters a jet. He attempts to fly to Bermuda um, they land in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they immediately get apprehended by the feds. Um, and then they're, like, questioning the pilot and stuff. The pilot was like, I don't even, like, I couldn't even have gotten to Bermuda anyway. Like, I don't have the right radio. I don't have the right plane. Like, so I don't know if it's just Bhagwan trying to do, like, a blaze of glory thing where he's like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to die in a plane crash. Like, 
very like Buddy Holly. Um, but he doesn't. He gets apprehended. He gets sent to jail. Um, and he goes to trial and he ends up getting a 10 year suspended sentence. He gets five years probation. He ha- he only has to pay 400,000 penalty and fines and prosecution costs. Um, but he does have to leave the U S and this is like, this has to do with like the immigration stuff, like the sham marriages to keep people over here and like just some other stuff, like the money laundering, like just a bunch of stuff. But he basically is just like, listen, I'm an old frail dude. And they do like a plea bargain. And I think it was a plea bargain also to like convict Sheila. Maybe I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bhagwan, he goes back to Pune where his like original ashram was. Um, and like kind of slowly, well, maybe not slowly, but like over time, all of the non-Indian people get kicked out of India because like their visas expire. And I think India was a lot harsher on them than the U S was. Mm-hmm. And so it's mainly just his Indian followers. Um, and he stays there for a few years. And But he's sick. He's sickly. His followers are like, oh, it's because he was poisoned in uh, U.S. prisons. And it's because Sheila like tried to poison him. And he was sick before he even left India the first time. So he ends up dying on January 9th, 1990, age 58, of heart disease. So that's kind of where his story ends. Like, mm-hmm. he just dies. And his his followers are heartbroken. They're still followers of... At that time, he was known as Osho. That's what people call him nowadays. Like, there's still followers of Osho all over. Um, there's actually, like, a Vice video where it was, like, a younger guy who's like, oh, yeah, my parents were followers of Osho. And I, I show them about... Uh, I show people about his meditations and stuff. And so he does, like, mm-hmm. the meditation where people are, like, crying and screaming. But it's not as violent. It's definitely, like, you're in your own bubble doing mm-hmm. it. Which it's like the meditations I can kind of get behind because it's like I do feel like people are extremely repressed and they just mm-hmm. need to put themselves out there. But the the murdering, the the bioterror, maybe not as much. Not so much. Not so much. No. Maybe just omit that next time we want to try that. Yeah. That's or maybe going like- out to you, TikTok cult. <laughs> See, that's why I say it because honestly, they're kind of using some of the same techniques that they're that mm-hmm. Rajneesh used. The Rajneeshis, like putting themselves out in the media, like being outrageous is the big one. Because like Sheila was just outrageous. She's still mm-hmm. outrageous, but like just out there causing drama, being a troll. So that's the end of my story for today. And I have a little note to end that on. My mom texted me back. (laughs) And she goes, yes, but it was the Hare Krishna that came through town. She was in grade school when it happened. And I remember we couldn't go play away from home because everyone's parents thought they would kidnap us while they were in town. So, (laughs) no, it was not the Rajneeshi, but it was some sort of cult. Maybe we'll cover them in an episode and I can call my mom in and ask her for any other details that she might remember. Who knows? Who knows? Although that does give me like, uh, like they do with like Roma people. They're like, they're going to steal, they're going to steal our children. It's like, we don't want your children. They're not the Belschnickel. Like, <laughs> yeah. <gonna> be fine. <laughs> like, first of all, that's another mouth to feed. Like, we're not trying mm-hmm. to feed another. We're not, we're just not trying to do that. And secondly, like, you think we want your kids? No. No. Mm-mm.
Okay, so for my topic today, I picked Betty and Barney Hill, specifically their alien abduction, um, alleged alien abduction, I guess it's still out for debate. Um, I picked it for a couple reasons, though. This is like the story that got me on the conspiracy theory bandwagon, like that got me down a rabbit hole. So I felt like it was very apt to pick it. Um, and because it's like one of America's first well-known alien abduction cases and kind of the thing that like kicked off the whole like alien conspiracy theory, I guess you would call it movement. Um, so that's why I picked it and I hope it's a good one. So here we go. <laughs> okay. So our story, it takes place in the early 1960s. Um, so just a little bit of background on Betty and Barney. They are an interracial couple in the 1960s. Um, and aside from that being a little bit abnormal for the time, they were really a pretty like normal average couple, right? So Betty was a social worker um, and Barney was a postal worker. Both were active civil servants in their community, members of the MAACP and involved in a local Unitarian church. So they were just like very cool, very woke, very like professional couple. Um, and by all their friends and neighbors accounts, they were just like typical people. They didn't have any sort of history of like mental illness or anything. They were educated, active in the community. Again, no history of odd behavior, um, which makes this story a little bit odd because typically you would think for the accounts that I'm about to give you, it would be like someone with either actually did get abducted or they would be like kind of fucking weird. Um, yeah. Well, and it's like during the 70s or during the 60s and being an interracial couple, like, you know, mm -hmm. that they were under a like a looking glass. A that they were like, yeah, they're like, we're watching everything they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like they can stay because they seem all right. But like, yeah, they're not going to bring any undue attention to themselves because no. that's just, uh, you know, causing more drama than I think they want. So getting into where the story gets a little bit strange. Um, so on September 19th of 1961, they were driving home from a vacation they had just taken to Niagara Falls. Uh, they lived in New Hampshire somewhere, so it wasn't a super long drive, about a five-hour trip. So they were driving home from Niagara Falls with their dog, Delcy. And on their way home, they stopped around 10 p.m. at a diner to get some coffee. Now, the only reason this is important is because it kind of helps us, like, formulate the timeline for events here. Mm -hmm. So they had stopped at 10 p.m. And from that point, they anticipated being home by about 3 a.m. So shortly after they stopped for this coffee break, Betty starts noticing in the lights behind her, in the sky behind her, rather, that there's bright lights. Bright lights in the sky, just kind of abnormal looking, enough that it caught her attention. So at first, Betty, being the logical queen that she is, assumes that she's just seeing like a shooting star or something. Um, but it keeps moving erratically and it's getting bigger and it's getting brighter. And so Betty kind of is like, all right, Barney, we need to stop the car. I want to get a better look and then we can walk our little puppy. So they ended up stopping at a scenic picnic area that's just south of a place called Twin Mountain, New Hampshire. Um, and just for context, the road that they're traveling on is very mountainy. And I will let you know why that's important here in a moment. So they get out of their car and they take these binoculars that they had with them because they had just been on like a nature vacation. And Barney looks through the binoculars and sees what he's describing as an odd shaped aircraft with different colorful flashing lights. Um, and it's moving kind of like a la ET in front of the face of the moon. Um, so it's not like super near them. 
but it's definitely not in like deep space. So they can tell it's like somewhere probably in our atmosphere. Um, well, this, this is point, like, this is like before like satellites and like, I mean, um, there's limited aircraft. Like there were some satellites, yeah. but it wasn't like there was constant. Right, right. They're not like circling the planet like they are now. It was a pretty, yeah. I think like the first satellites went up in like the late 50s. So there wouldn't have been, been many here. Yeah. Um, at this point, Betty's like, that is really definitely not a shooting star. That's something weird. And she recalls in her past, her sister had mentioned that she thought she had seen a UFO at one point. So now in Betty's mind, she's like, oh, this is what we're seeing. It's a UFO. I don't know if she's going to go so far as to say it's an alien at this point, but she kind of knows something weird is going on. Uh, Barney tries to explain it away and he's reasoning in his mind that it's just a commercial aircraft. Um, but after watching it for some time, he was like, nope, that's not fucking right. Because he begins to see this object like rapidly descending in a way that an aircraft would not. So obviously this freaks them out. So they get back to their car and they try to get back on the highway so that they can like get the fuck out of Dodge because they don't want to get abducted by aliens or whatever strange thing this is. They just don't want any part of it. Yeah. Um, well, at that point, they're probably like, I mean, that's like kind of in the height of like red scare type shit so they're probably like it's the communists coming to get us like at the very least like at the very most it is aliens or like you know right it's russian spycraft or something they don't want any part of it um but at the same time they kind of want to keep their eye on it to see what it is so they're driving a little bit slowly than they normally were just so they could kind of observe what it is but they're still trying to drive away from it and at this time it's starts descending closer and closer and by watching the movements that it's making and the way it's interacting with the landscape specifically like going in between those mountains and those gaps in the sky that I talked about at this point they're kind of able to like reason about the size of the object um and so Betty thinks it's about 40 feet long and that it's rotating and it's moving erratically back and forth in this landscape between the mountains so they can kind of get a sense of the size of the object so after following it for a while, the UFO is like, okay, bet. And it starts to like rapidly descend toward them even more so than it had been already. And it's like causes Barney to like abruptly stop in the middle of the road. And at this point, the craft is hovering above their car. Um, and it's taking up, if you can imagine it, they're sitting in the, obviously the front seat and the entire windshield. So it's like hovering closely enough over their vehicle that that's all they can see is just this UFO in their windshield. And so Barney, he's like my man after my own heart. He describes the shape of the aircraft as a pancake, <laughs> um, which seems very much like something I would do to equate it to something like food. So we love him for that. Um, but at this point, Barney is like, I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to defend my wife. I'm going to defend Delcy, my little puppy dog. <laughs> and he grabs his binoculars and grabs a pistol because homeboy was packing. And he's like, I'm going to take on these alien forces by my damn self. Um, I, I don't know why he thought that was a good idea, because if it was me and I saw a giant rotating spacecraft, I would not think that my little fucking pistol is going to do a whole heck of a lot. See, but you're I, a you're a Libra. Like, I'm a I'm a Gemini. Yeah. So, like, I'll fight God. 
like if I'm gonna go down, if these aliens are gonna take me uh-huh. down, I'm gonna go down fighting at least. Like <laughs> I just like can't imagine seeing an alien and being like, my first gut instinct is to think that I'm just gonna take a fucking pistol and just like start shooting it off at the spacecraft. But anyway, Barney. Well, I don't. He's, he's don't a man, so of course. Well, that and it's like this. It sounds like the spacecraft was like our UFO was like stalking them. It wasn't just like mm-hmm. an innocent like I wouldn't see an alien and just be like I'm gonna shoot it. But like right, this thing was like stalking them. It was coming after them. It was being like hostile. It had like mm-hmm. hostile craft language, not body language, but like it was going after them. So he's like, yeah. you know, he's got to do it for the puppy. That's true. He's got to save a sweet puppy, Delcy. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> we'll maybe on our Instagram page put some like reference photos. And he's like a little wiener dog, but he's super chubby. It's so cute. (laughs) But anyway, back to our alien abduction. So remember, he has his binoculars. So he's got his pistol, his binoculars. And he starts like walking towards the UFO. And he takes a little peep through his spy glasses. And he sees what he describes as 8 to 11 sort of humanoid figures. And they're in the aircraft staring back at him. Um. And at this time, all of the figures but one kind of start to move towards the front of the craft. And then one of the figures continues to look at him. And Barney is being communicated with whether this is like over a PA system. That seems a little fucking antiquated for alien technology. I'm going to assume it was telepathically. Yeah. Um, But he's getting the idea in his brain that this alien is telling him, stay where you are and just keep looking. As this is happening and he's, like, making eye contact with, like, Daddy Alien and the ship, all these other guys, the aliens, are moving towards the front of the craft. So, like, towards him. And then he starts to see red lights on the side of the spaceship and, like, a hatch opening up out of the bottom. Um, And in my mind, I'm getting a picture, like, in Star Wars where the little jet bridge comes down and, like, Chewie and Han come walking out. So, at this point... Barney is seeing the jet bridge come down. He's seeing aliens walking toward him. And he's like, got a blast. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Jimmy Neutron and my ship getting out of here. So he high, like hightails it back to Betty in their car. And he's yelling at this point. They're going to capture us. Just like freaking out clearly. So naturally, they start to speed the fuck out of there. They're in their car. And at this point, immediately, pretty much after they start speeding away, they start to hear a series of beeping and buzzing noises. Um, the car also starts to vibrate and tingling sensation starts to pass through their bodies. Ooh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> and so at this point, they lose consciousness. Um, and after a second series of beeping and buzzing, the couple then return to full consciousness. Um, so to them at the time, it's as if it had just happened sequentially. However, when they recover, not only is it two hours later, they've lost that chunk of time. Um, but they're also 35 miles away from the spot where they had initially stopped. Um, they can only recall making a sudden unplanned turn, having encountered a roadblock, and then observing a fiery orb in the road. When they arrive home in Portsmouth, where they're from, they're confused. Clearly, they hadn't made it in their five-hour time frame because they had lost that two hours of time. So after they get home... Again, they can't recall what happened in that two hours of time. So obviously they have the sense that something seriously fucked up has just happened. And Betty's dress is all torn and stained. Barney's shoes are all scuffed up because it was like the 1960s. So they're, of course, wearing like nice garb dress shoes. And now they're just like totally fucked. Like dry clean Um, only. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then 
also his binocular strap has broken and then on their exterior of their car there's tiny concentric circles like in little shiny spots that weren't there before so it wasn't like water spots or anything it was like almost as if it had been etched into the paint of their vehicle um, and one other thing to know about what they were wearing is that the watches that they had on that night never worked again. Changed the batteries, had them fixed. They just never worked again. Um, so Betty, being a woman, has a very strong womanly intuition that when they come into the house, the luggage cannot come inside with them. Whatever it is about it, she does not want that luggage in the home. Um, she probably knows that there's like radiation contamination because she's a smart lady. She's educated, but... It's she probably got that also sense. She got that womanly intuition. <laughs> she knows what's up. So Barney, his immediate reaction when they get home, typical dude fashion, he felt compelled to check his penis um, <laughs> to make sure nothing unusual was there. So he checks his genitals. Nothing weird. is. It appears perfectly fine. But his gut reaction is like, I need to check my dick and make sure... <laughs> Everything is in order. He's got to check for that space herpes. Exactly. <laughs> Make sure it's still there. <laughs> Which, you know, fair. He's a man. I could see why he would do that. Well, it's like a primal uh, just urge. Practice. Like, yeah, you got to yeah. make sure that everything is there. And, I, mm -hmm. you know. They didn't want to chop off his human ding dong for testing purposes. So he still had it. Good for him. Or take like an um, inch off. Yeah. <laughs> just just the tip. <laughs> <laughs> so to get rid of the icky feeling the hills they then take extra long showers to remove any like contamination and at this point they sit down and try to draw a picture of what they had observed later that night betty has the notion instead of washing the clothes they were wearing to just hang them in the closet without washing because she had noticed like a strange pink residue on it um, and didn't want to wash away any evidence. So pretty smart on her part, I would say. Um, now, in my research, I couldn't find anywhere that they had ever determined what that was. I think they did send it out for testing, but it was, like, inconclusive what that pink residue yeah. was. As with most, like, um, UFO cases and, like, finding weird stuff, they're just like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Or it's like when they had, like, a, there's been, like, a couple cases of, like, weird shit just falling from the sky. And they, like, take it in for testing. And they're just like... So like, we don't know what this is now. <laughs> space goop. That's what or we they can do identify. Know, and they're not telling us. Okay, so back to you remember how I mentioned the exterior of their car had shiny circles on it? Mm -hmm. So the next day after this whole event, I guess it's technically the same day because they arrived very early morning. Yeah. Um, but they took a compass, so like a little magnetic compass, and they started moving it over the spots on their vehicle where the shiny circles were. And the needle was just going crazy, just like spinning all the all around. Um, but when they moved it a few inches away from the shiny spots, it would stop. So it seemed like something weird was going on with the magnetism of the trunk there. So... After this all had happened, the Hills, they kind of sit on it for a few days. Clearly, not only are they an interracial couple in the early 60s, so they're not wanting any attention, um, but they also are going to report being abducted by aliens. So they take a few days to kind of like sit and think about it and decide what they want to do. Um, but eventually they do decide to report this incident to the U.S. Air Force. Um, 
while they're reporting, again, keep in mind, they don't want to come off as crazy. Betty withholds a lot of details because she's afraid that they're going to be labeled as eccentric and get mm-hmm. any a lot more undue um, attention on them. Uh, and also keep in mind that this is definitely still a time period where if you had like a mental illness or something, you'd probably get lobotomized. <laughs> like yeah, mental health care was just not great. So she withholds a lot of information to protect her and to protect her husband from like being ostracized now it is important to mention too though that their relationship was like widely accepted within their friend group and within their family so they at least had that support but like the community as a whole i can imagine would not have been very supportive at that time Um, and just like society in general so like even going through like like go if they couldn't probably visit like the deep south because it's like oh god no okay so a day after they made this report a major from the base calls him back and he's wanting a more detailed interview. Um, so she gives him a few more details, still nothing like to the full extent of what they had experienced. And in his report, he determines that the Hills had simply misidentified the planet Jupiter. Um, <laughs> later, this report was changed to say, and this is, he just changed it. He didn't re-interview them, but it was changed to say that they had experienced an optical condition Um, So basically an optical illusion. And then the report was forwarded to the Air Force's UFO research project um, called Project Blue Book. At this point, I smell something a little fishy. um, Because to be honest, like, if you thought they were crazy, why would you send it on for research? So I have a feeling that he's like, these people are being serious. But again, I don't want to alarm the general public. So we're going to tell them they're crazy and seeing things. And we're going to pass all this info onto our research unit um well and like so the, the u.s government is not known for being thorough like mm-hmm. that like they wouldn't just be sending on every little thing like you know yeah it would have to be like an immediate like threat or something for them to be like okay we're gonna sit down and, like really look into this and yeah. for them to get a ufo report like even if they were taking it seriously just having that report and no additional information like what can you really fucking do with it so Right. Like, I can see why he was like, okay, whatever. But at the same time, like, it seems weird that he passed the information along. I don't know. Yeah. That's just me getting conspiracy theory. But. Well, and it's also like, like, just given how the U.S. government works, it seems like they would wait for like three or four more incidents to happen before. Mm-hmm. Like, if it were questionable, they'd be like, well, we'll, we'll watch it. Like, Yeah. So they had like a good data pool to like start actually looking at. But yeah, again, this is like the first account that was like a widely publicized or known of UFO incident. So they probably just had never seen anything like this before. Yeah. Um, so during the same period of time where she's getting interviewed by the USAF, um, she decides to make a trip to her local library because remember she had in her brain been like, okay, my sister told me about a UFO incident. So I'm going to go do some additional research. And this was the time before Google. So she couldn't just hop on Reddit and ask the masses. She had to go down to the local library So she checks out a book about UFOs written by a man named Donald Kehoe. Um, He was a retired Marine, but he was also the head of a UFO civilian research group called NICAP. Um, So that's N-I-C-A-P. I don't know what NICAP stands for. I didn't do my research, but anyone that's listening can certainly feel free to Google it. (laughs) Um, So Betty decides I'm going to write this Donald Kehoe a letter recounting the events in full detail because she has found her people. She has found the believers. She's going to tell him everything that happened. 
Um, she also mentions that she and Barney had been sort of discussing the idea of hypnosis to help them recover the memories from their encounter. Um, so Donald, he passes this info along to a buddy who is an astronomer and also a member of NICAP. And then this buddy of his calls to interview the Hills and determines that they are telling the truth. Now, this gets like a little weird to me because I guess maybe he just has a gut instinct that they're telling the truth or maybe he's MIB. I don't know. I really failed to see how this was like super important information. Like he's got more information that he never shared, but like, yeah. Yeah. So it's hard for the general public to determine if this guy is credible or not, but he did say that he thought it was the credible account of an actual UFO encounter. Whether or not we choose to believe him, it's up to interpretation. Um, but there sounds you like go. an expert, like though. I said, like, he sounds like an expert. And like I said, he could be MIB. We don't know. Yeah. Or he could be he's, an alien himself. It's true. It's true. He could be an alien himself, and that's how he knows. He's like, yo, dog, um, I was there. Like, Oh, yeah. He's like, ah, I was on that ship, homie. I told you to stay put. <laughs> I told you to stay put. You wouldn't even remember this if mm-hmm. you just stay put. Dog, you fucked up. but yeah anyway so the aftermath after their interviews after having been contacted by these NICAP members Betty has a really hard time shaking the feeling that something bad has happened to them again keep in mind they can't recall what exactly happened except for they had seen the ship and then they lost two hours Um, so at this point Betty starts having recurring nightmares Uh, Barney writes them off as just being bad dreams, but he also has a gut feeling that he described as one, a person who saw something that they don't want to remember. So he also knows something is up and I'm have a feeling he said they're just dreams just to like put her at ease. Um, Or maybe he's just like being a man and writing her off. We don't know. (laughs) Well, it's kind of like, um, like a PTSD response. It's like a, mm-hmm. a lot of times when you go into shock, like after a bad accident or like if you get hurt really bad, like you're, you won't remember things, but you'll mm-hmm. know that something bad happened. Right. Um, and I mean that you see that a lot in like extreme trauma cases, not that I'm an mm-hmm. expert by any means, but like just kind of in some own stuff I've researched on, but it's like, yeah. You just you don't remember what happened. You know something bad happened. You know you have mm-hmm. the trauma. Right? You have specific responses to stimuli that you didn't have before, um, and just like weird, not weird stuff, but just stuff that didn't bother you before is now right suddenly an issue. Right. Well, and part of that too is a lot of. I feel like again, I don't have personal experience with this, but you'll go into like denying that these things happened mm-hmm. as well as a, just a way to cope with it. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that that's what he's doing. He's either like not remembering it as a trauma response or he's just like denying it because it is easier for him to cope with it that way than yeah. to be like, yes, I got abducted by aliens and they touched my pee pee. So, <laughs> well, and like for him, I mean, he's a black man in 1960s mm-hmm. America. Like he's got to be, he's got to be stoic. He's got to be like quiet, strong. Mm-hmm. He can't be, it's not like now where now it's like an alien touched my pee pee and like there's a support group for it. It's like- right. <laughs> You can go on Reddit and find a whole community of people that also had their alien touch their ding dong. So alien molestations out the wazoo. Like he's got, mm-hmm. even if he does feel it, he's got it to pretend that he does it. So back to Betty's nightmares. This is where the story, like as if it wasn't weird already, it really starts to get wild. So they start happening 10 days after the encounter. 
And she mentions that she never in her memories had such vivid dreams, like never in her life has had recurring dreams like this in such great detail. And so these dreams happened to her for five consecutive nights. And they just stuck with her in such detail that they occupy her mind like all day. Um, And she eventually decides that she's going to start writing down the details of her dreams in November of that year. So this is like a month and a half after she starts having these dreams, they've stuck with her. And she's like, I got to write this shit down. Like, we got to remember what this is so I can pass it along to, you know, my UFO brethren. (laughs) So this is the content of Betty's dreams. Now, from the research I did, that wasn't linear. Her dreams weren't. Um, But just for the purpose of storytelling, I've kind of lumped them all together and like given it a definite timeline here. Yeah. So here is what happened in her dreams. Here we go. So she dreams that she and Barney, they encountered a roadblock and their car was then surrounded by men. Um, She goes in and out of consciousness. And then when she comes to, she realizes that she's being forced by two small men to walk through the forest at night. Um, Behind her, she sees Barney is also being forced to walk and she calls out to him. But it seems as if he's either sleepwalking or in a trance. He's just not responding to her. Mm-hmm. so she knows that the men that are guiding them through the forest are about five foot tall and they're wearing matching blue uniforms that kind of resemble a military cadet at the time and they had a nearly human appearance uh, but they had grayish skin black hair dark eyes and very prominent noses so a little side note do you remember there's like an episode of spongebob where squidward is wearing like kind of a uniform with a little blue hat when i was researching this that's like the only mental image i have of these aliens now is that it's squidward and this fucking like military looking uniform but he's got black eyes so if that helps you like with the story to picture squidward that's what i'm doing if it's of any consequence um i was actually picturing the uh the oompa loompas from the johnny depp charlie and the chocolate factory oh, god because i feel like at yeah. some point they, they mm-hmm. wore blue uniforms but like that's what I'm picturing, that they're just, like, leading them around. And they're all just, like, in a line next to the chocolate fountain, like, Augustus Gloop. <laughs> I don't know the name of the song, or the words to the song, but, yeah. I like that, actually, better than my Squidward analogy. So, make that person's skin bluish-green, um, and that's the mental image we're going to go with from here on. <laughs> Those little guys kind of remind me of Dan and DeVito as well. Yeah, they definitely... They got the belly. Well, and I don't think, like, the original... scratch that. My alien is now a gray-skinned Danny DeVito. (laughs) That makes me feel a lot better about this whole interaction. Perfect. Daddy Danny. Daddy Danny, Alien King. Yes, Squidward to Oompa to Danny DeVito to the next part of our dream, which is Betty and Barney, after having been led through the forest, they're guided up that ramp into a disc-shaped metal ship. And once inside the ship, they're separated. Um, So their accounts from here on out differ. Betty protests being separated, but is told by a man that she interprets in her brain as the leader, um, that if she and Barney are examined together, it's going to take much longer to finish. And so they're both shown to separate rooms. Once she gets to her examination room, the leader enters with another man that Betty calls the examiner. And the examiner, she says, is calm and has a pleasant demeanor. However, despite the two men communicating with her in English, she has a difficult time understanding him through an alien accent. Clearly, he is not from this planet, so we can give him that fall on his communication skills. 
Um, again, important to note, they were nice to her. They came in peace, and we love that for them. Um, so, <laughs> hostile abduction and uh, mm-hmm. molesting, and they're like, but yeah, they were. Yeah, they were chill. They're cool dudes. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't seem like they held a gun to them, so that's good, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Anyways, being the psychically examiner- taken hostage, you yeah. know. <laughs> that's true. I wonder if they like off- offered them tea when they walked in the door. Would you like some tea, sir? Probably not. Hot towel. Yeah. I wonder what the alien equivalent of tea is like the blue milk in Star Wars. That's what they got offered. <laughs> but anyways, so the examiner then tells Betty that he's going to be conducting tests to note the difference between the humans and the alien race. So he sits her on a chair, he shines a bright light on her and cuts off a lock of her hair. He also takes nail trimmings, examines her eyes, mouth, teeth, you know, just does like cavity checks basically. Um, And then checks out her hands as well. So after examining, examining her legs and feet, he uses like a dull knife to scrape a skin sample onto like what resembled to her as like cellophane so that he could put it like on a slide. And then, and this is like my least favorite bit that literally gives me chills down my back to think about, but he tested her nervous system by like shoving a needle into her belly button, um, which obviously causes her like great pain. But then the leader realizes this is causing her pain and goes and like waves his hand in front of her face and it just like the pain totally vanishes. So after all the examinations are done, done. Betty leaves the room and starts communicating with the leader. And honestly, in her accounts, he seemed like a pretty chill dude. She she picks up this book that she sees and there's like rows and rows of strange symbols in this book and like all the books that she's seeing obviously is not in English. And so she's looking through it and the leader goes, oh yeah, you can take that home with you. And so she also asks where he came from and she describes him pulling down like an instructional map and pointing out where he's from in this dotted map of stars. After some time, the men are escorting them from the ship. Um, Obviously their examinations are done. The aliens are like, okay, you're free to go. But then a disagreement breaks out with the aliens over that book that the leader had given to Betty. Um, And so the leader comes to Betty. He's like, Hey, sorry, dude. Like, my coworkers are really pissed. Like my boss is going to kill me. Like I can't give you that book. So she gives the book back, blah, blah, blah. And Betty's like, this is bullshit. And the leader's like, well, they don't want you to even remember this encounter at all. So I'm sorry, but we have to take the book and you're not going to remember any of this. And then Betty's like, Mm-mm, fuck that. Like I'm a woman. I'm going to remember no matter what you do to my memory, <laughs> I'm going to remember. And she was right. So, <laughs> Then the hills are escorted back to their car and the leader tells them to wait there and to watch the craft's departure. So that's what they did. And from there they resume their drive. So that's basically the contents of her dream in a nutshell. She did go into a little bit more detail on like what exactly the examinations were. Um, but we get the point. Yeah. So at this point, um, again, we're in November of 61 Betty, she's writing down the experience she's having in her dreams, and she's being interviewed left, right, and center by these members of NICAP. And so in one of those interviews, the idea of bringing hypnosis into the picture again comes up, and it's suggested so that they can recover the memories from those two hours that they've already lost. And at first, they're kind of hesitant about it, especially Barney. Um, But eventually, they concede to that and decide that maybe it would help put Betty's mind at ease to have that and try to recover what actually happened 
Again, I understand this is probably a trauma response on Barney's part, but I feel like he's, like, really downplaying it. Like, you were there, too. Yeah. So, I don't know. Well, and He's starting I mean, to annoy me at this point in the story. Like, as far as the hypnosis goes, like, he's probably thinking, like, something definitely happened. But what he might be trying to rationalize it as is, like, maybe they got apprehend- apprehended by, like, some yokels and, mm-hmm. like, something bad happened to them then. Um you know, like, maybe they got assaulted or something. But, like, obviously, like, they don't have, like, a scratch on them. Mm-hmm. So that he, so that maybe that's why that's weird for him. So he, maybe he wants to figure out, like, okay, I don't think it was aliens, but something definitely happened. Yeah. So let's try to figure out what happened and why we didn't end up more hurt or, like, you know. But also, stop gaslighting your wife, sir. Yeah. Which she anyway. says it's aliens, <laughs> believe her. Yeah, no shit. So three years later, we're fast forwarding in time about three years. That's how long it takes them to actually go through with getting these hypnosis sessions. And so they have their sessions with this dude named Benjamin Simon. Um, They're referred to by a psychiatrist that Barney had been having sessions with regularly. Now, it's unclear when Barney started having these sessions, if he was seeing a therapist before this whole incident or not. Um, We don't know that for certain. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but... Anyways, so his therapist refers them to this Ben Simon guy who is a hypnotherapist. Um, Ben decides he's going to hypnotize the hills several times. He's going to do it in separate sessions um, so that the hills don't overhear each other and kind of like take bits and pieces from each other's sessions and insert it into their own memory of it. So at the end of each session, he's also reinstating that amnesia um, so that they can't expound upon these experiences and like their normal waking time um so it's through barney sessions that we kind of start to see a more flushed out version of events for what he had experienced and his recall is actually quite similar to betty's dreams which is kind of kind of cool because like they had the same experiences now it's kind of argued that maybe he is like implanting these memories into himself because he's heard betty's recounts of the dreams but there are some differences in the two it's important to note too, his sessions are kind of punctuated with like outbursts of fear and just like really intense emotion. So they don't get a ton of information out of him, not as much as I think they would like, because they always have to cut their sessions pretty short because mm-hmm. he's having like a really severe and anxious reaction to Aww. recalling these events. Um, but what they do get from him is that Barney recalls pulling onto a dirt road and he sees six men standing in their way. Uh, three of these men approached the car and told Barney not to fear them. Barney's biggest source of trauma, it seems like, is recalling what these aliens look like. So he's really traumatized by their eyes and is saying creepy shit along the lines of like, oh, their eyes, they're in my brain and all I see are these eyes. And it's this point in the sessions where he's like in tears, just like having a really big fear response to it. And he says that the eyes are just there. They're like pressing against his eyes is how he's describing it. So his recollection of the way the aliens look are very similar to Betty's. Um, Not her dream version, though. She does have a different version that she's recalling in her hypnosis sessions. Um, So he corroborates that they're able to communicate with him in English, but describe them more as being able to communicate telepathically. So they're communicating in English, but through their brain holes. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the recollection is fairly similar, like I said, to Betty's dreams. Um, 
but again, the events is far less detailed in his recollection because he said that he, during the whole experience, kept his eyes closed really tightly shut just because he was so scared. Um, the one distinct difference he gives in the examination process is that he recalls a cup-like device being placed over his penis um, and a sample was taken, a semen sample was taken, and he also recalls a tube being placed up his beehole. So... Barney, I'm sorry I doubted you. I get it why you checked your PP. Um, I still think it's funny that not having recalled that per se, you checked your penis is like the first thing you went to, but I get it. I mean, so, I feel like if I had a penis, I might check it after. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at the very least, make sure it's still there. Um, so wait, so, so wait, during all of this. Yeah. Sorry. Where's the dog? I in the am car? assuming the dog is just chilling in the car. He's taking a nap. Okay. He's sleeping. Maybe. He doesn't know what happened. That's what I'm hoping. Or maybe Delcy recalls the events in like full detail, but the aliens didn't think to like neuralize him. Can you imagine just being a dog and like remembering? Oh God, having seen some shit. You've seen some shit for sure. But I'm gonna go with that. He was just like chilling in the car, having a good doggy doggy nap. That's what I'm hoping for him. Yeah. Um. So in Betty's hypnosis sessions. It's, again, really similar to that of her dreams with a few small differences. The technology she describes in the sessions was quite different than what she remembered in her dreams. Um, and the alien's physical appearance appearance is different. And the sequence of events is a little different as well. So Simon also suggested that she draws what she remembers of the star map that the leader showed her. And this time, again, going back to, like, she remembered the technology differently. She describes the map not as, like, a pull-down screen, but it's more of, like, a 3D holographic projection. So she draws this map that she can remember, and it consisted of, like, 12 prominent stars. And then three smaller stars that are connected by a series of, like, solid and dashed lines. So she says that these lines are made up of trade routes and the solid ones are ones that are like kind of in the galaxy for those aliens. And then the dashed lines are like farther away systems that they kind of like deal with sometimes, but it's not like a very commonly used route. It's like a highway versus a dirt road. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So we got the highway straight lines and then we got the gravel dashed lines and nobody wants to go to the gravel dashed lines because it's where the hillbillies live. <laughs> AK Earth. So, yeah, AK Earth. We're probably one of those three planets that they're like, we don't fuck with that. Fuck Earth. We're <laughs> trash. Anyway, <laughs> so her maps then are analyzed later by an amateur astronomer. Um, and so this amateur astronomer determines that the map was a viewpoint from a star system called Zeta Reticuli. Now, this theory is never, like, widely accepted by the astronomy community, but it did spark enough a debate and commentary over it that it's literally talked about for decades in the community. Um, and it's not until the 1990s that a satellite mission, I think it's a European satellite, but it showed some of the stars from this interpretation of the Zeta Reticuli theory are much farther away than previously thought, and so this largely debunks that theory. And so at this point, I think, the theory is that it's just kind of a nonsense map or it's in a galaxy or a solar system that we just are fully not aware of. Yeah. So the conclusion that Ben Simon, that the hypnotherapist comes to after completing their sessions 
was that the entire experience and counts from that abduction could possibly be fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams. Um, but he then goes on to write an article about the Hills that's published in the medical journal called Psychiatric Opinion. So I think that's still out there in the archive somewhere if anyone wants to go look that up. And they end up calling the case psychological psychological aberration. Um, to this, Barney's like, hell no, that's that's not what happened. And he's at this point, after recalling everything that happened in these sessions, is like fully ready to accept that they had been abducted. Although he never like fully embraces that theory as much as Betty does. So he knows mm -hmm. that he's been abducted, but he's not like willing to accept all the greater detail that Betty goes into. And so that's kind of the end of like their, their little journey here. So their life after the abduction is clearly a little abnormal. They get interviewed a bunch. There's like articles and write-ups about them all the time. Um, they, mostly go back to their regular lives. Um, they're kind of willing to discuss their UFO encounter with friends and family, occasionally a UFO researcher, but the Hills apparently made, didn't make an effort to like seek out additional publicity on this. It's only when they're approached that they offer those interviews. Um, yeah. So later in life, Betty claims that she's seen UFOs a number of times after the initial abduction as if they were like keeping tabs on her. And she came, became kind of a celebrity within that UFO community. Um, she also, up until like the late 70s, is going on like almost weekly UFO research, like hunting trips with UFO societies. So she like really gets into this UFO culture. Um, so Barney actually dies in the late 60s. He dies in 69 of a cerebral hemorrhage. And then Betty lives a really long life doesn't die until October of 2004 and at 85, she never remarried. So that's kind of the end of their story. Um, now, as far as the publications and the refutations of these claims go, there's kind of a lot of them. Um, and obviously there's theories as to what the fuck actually happened here for the people that don't actually believe that they were abducted by aliens. Basically the cop out of the centuries psychiatrists start to claim that the experiences were just hallucinations and this is the bullshit line of the century i tell you their experiences were hallucinations brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in the 1960s and that's kind of what's like widely accepted by the psychiatric community which seems like such bullshit to me um betty to her dying day discounts the suggestion noting that her relation relationship with Barney was happy. Their interracial marriage caused no problems with their friends and their family and their immediate community. And so there was no stress yeah. there that would have caused that. It's like, it definitely existed and you can't like gloss over that fact that like mm -hmm. they definitely had to be careful. Like people thought there was something wrong with them or that it was right. like because of drugs that they were together. But in reality, like, much like nowadays where like people are in interracial re relationships just mm -hmm. because they enjoy each other's company. Right. Like, or like w maybe they were like trying to suggest that it was just like such a culture shock that like to both of them, even though, cause I mean, that's how they thought back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for like sure. But it just seems like to blame hallucinations on stress caused by being interracial couple like and i get it it was a different time period so maybe it was like more it sounds like something i could understand though. yeah it really does like, it really does 
like, well, what were you wearing? Like, well, it's Mm because you were in an interracial relationship. Right. Yeah. So you've got to be crazy or stressed out. So, of course, you weren't abducted. Like, you can't Um, just have a normal, fulfilled relationship. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So that theory pisses me off. And I know that that's kind of like the widely accepted theory of the time from, like, the psychiatric community. I'm sure that, you know, doctors of today would not probably say that. But. Anyway, so there's also skeptics that note that the hypnosis sessions occurred over two years after the reported abductions, which gave the Hills plenty of time to discuss their encounter and kind of corroborate the story, and that it was just all made up, basically, for publicity. Um, They also suggested that Barney's memories might have been influenced by an episode of a popular sci-fi TV show of the time called The Outer Limits, and this episode was broadcasted about two weeks before the first hypnotic session. So the episode, it featured an extraterrestrial with like really large eyes, which kind of goes back to like his interpretation of what they look like and the eyes being freaky. But when asked about this theory, Betty insisted that they had never seen that show before. Um, Again, up to interpretation, whether or not they were telling the truth there, but I kind of am firmly on the side of they were abducted by aliens. So (laughs) I don't know. Well, and I mean, for being such like, reasonable rational people that they were mm-hmm. it, to me it doesn't seem like they would be out here and they weren't looking for the publicity either like it's mm-hmm. not like they're like oh we're gonna make up this crazy story like it's not like the boy in the balloon story from like a couple right. years back like they're not just trying to do it for fame riches whatever like they would only do interviews when asked like they're not out here for the clout mm-hmm. they're just like this is something that's traumatic that happened to us right uh, well that kind of goes back to like they both had successful careers. They were both like active in the community. They had pretty mm-hmm. like fulfilled lives before yeah. this happened. So why would they have just been like, I'm going to completely take my reputation make people think that I'm crazy. And like, it just doesn't make sense to me that they would do that. Um, right. Again, people surprise you, but it just, in my mind, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, no. Like so they were that's... living the dream exactly yeah and again like their friends and family they're all cool with them being a couple so it doesn't make sense that they would basically just like throw their reputation out the window at that time especially when it wasn't so widely accepted for them to be together so yeah that that theory doesn't make sense to me either um but yeah anyway over the years after the abduction up until like i said the late 70s betty she goes on ufo vigils at least three times a week And during one of these evenings, she was joined by a UFO enthusiast named John Oswald. Um, And when asked about Betty's continuing UFO observations, Oswald goes, she's not really seeing UFOs, but she is calling them out. So one night they went out together and he goes, Mrs. Hill is unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a street light. (laughs) So this guy just like throws around the bus is like, no, she's a fucking crazy person. But again, why would you damage your reputation on something like that? I just, no, I don't get it. So of course, over the years, there's like a number of books and articles written about this case. Um, One of the most popular being a book that came out in 1966 called Interrupted Journey. And it's by John G. Fuller. Um, I believe you can listen to that on Amazon. Um, So if anyone's interested, go look that up. And then excerpts of this book. Hashtag not spawns. Wish I was. (laughs) Um, but bits and pieces of this book are also published in magazines and the book went on to sell like a ton of copies and really is what publicized the Hills account to the extent like, that it is today. 
like modern generations. Mm -hmm. And so this case is actually used as inspiration on a lot of TV shows too. So some of the more well-known ones, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. I think it was on in Mm -hmm. the 80s. But there's also an episode of Mystery at the Museum. And the X-Files, there's an episode of the X-Files based on this case. Um, So honestly... I don't know where I kind of fall on the spectrum of like, hell yeah, they were abducted. Like I lean way more towards that than anything else. Um, But I don't know. There's like a lot of theories out there that you could be like, okay, I can kind of see that. And maybe like it was an exaggeration of something that actually did happen. Yeah. I really think they were probably, if not abducted, something fucking wild and traumatic happened to them that they either as a trauma response made up this alien abduction or they actually were abducted. So that that kind of wraps up the that story, but it's kind of wild. And again, it's the story that really got me into like the whole aliens and conspiracy theories thing. So I thought it'd be a good note to start on. Well, and like where I think I stand on it is like if something traumatic did happen to them that wasn't aliens, like they would have had more physical like marks on themselves. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't just be like, oh, we we left without a scratch. Like, yeah, our car was kind of damaged. And like the car is also a weird thing because like there's no there's no like magnetizing tools mm-hmm. out there like that at that time. I don't even know if there's any like that now, but like definitely not then. Mm-hmm. Um, something well, and if there happened. were, it'd be like really specialized tools. So it's not something they would have been able to do themselves. It would have been some like really like highly organized mafioso had some like yeah. specialized tool that would do it. And that just seems kind of outlandish. And so does being abd- abducted by aliens, but that or it was yeah. the government like, it was that USAF general that was like, mm, you just misidentified Jupiter. JK, I'm going to report this to the fucking alien research group. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Let's mansplain uh, UFOs to people now. Yeah. God. I don't know. It sucks, though, for Betty because, like, she lived until 2004 without Barney, the only person that, like, experienced that with her. And so many people were just like, this lady is, like, full of shit. So can you imagine, like, that would have sucked? Yeah, and it's, like, to, when you go through, like, a traumatic experience to be able to talk that over with someone else. And, like, he didn't live very much longer after. No, he died, yeah, in 69. So there was, like, a, I guess, eight years after the experience. Yeah. But still. But, like, in the span of a lifetime, like, she lived, what, like, 30, 40 years after him? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and then it's also, like, did she ever speculate that maybe because they got abducted that that's why he had, because it was a brain aneurysm? Yeah, it was a cerebral hemorrhage. Mm. So, so, yeah, it could have been due to that alien testing. It's because they touched his pee-pee. It's because they touched his pee-pee. <laughs> it just blew his mind. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've talked about our topics... uh we're going to end each episode with a little uh, tarot reading, just community tarot reading, super general. So very much like those TikToks that you see where it's like, if you're seeing this reading, it's meant for you. So we're sending that out to all of you guys. Hopefully yeah. it's no doom and gloom. We'll see. No, it's not. So I <laughs> shuffled and I had some cards fall out of the deck. So like good rule of thumb is like when you shuffle and you have cards fall out of the deck, like those are the ones that like you need to pick. So um, we have this one, which is the nine of wands reverse. Also, this is 
the unicorn crystal tarot deck. So they all have nice little unicorns and it's pink and like this is what the back looks like. <laughs> Very and cute. It, it gives really good energy. So this one means that like right now people may be feeling like kind of paranoid, like confused, like hesitant to go out and do things. Um, and so the next card that fell out was the Queen of Swords. So like this is this is like let's go out and do things. Let's have be a person of action and um, really put ourselves out there. There's some aggressive energy um, to like get out. Um, and then we have the death card reversed, which is not necessarily that bad. Like people see the death card and they're like, oh, that means I'm going to die. Like, no, death is about rebirth. Um, this is more like, you're at a standstill, you're stagnant. So you gotta like, you gotta take this energy, you gotta go out and you gotta make changes in your life. You can't be waiting around, you can't be standstill, like make some changes, be assertive, be type A. So that's our tarot reading for today. That's pretty apt for us right now though, for being yeah. assertive and we're gonna starting off a podcast, we're making changes, rebirthing into whatever this is. Yeah, well, and the reverse death is like, Right now, like, we're at a standstill or stagnant. Like, no. We need to go out there. We need to put ourselves out there. But for all of our listeners, this might apply to you as well. I'm not a licensed psychic, though. I'm not Miss Cleo. <laughs> Can you be a licensed psychic? I... Do you remember that, like, when we were young, like, there would be, like, Miss Cleo. Cleo? Yeah, like, yeah. you would call in, it was, like, a dollar a minute or something, or, like, five dollars a minute if you got, like, a good one, and they would just, mm -hmm. like, tell you your future? Yeah. yeah. No. I, I, there's some licensing, or, like, Sylvia Brown. Oh, yeah. God. R.I.P. Sylvia Brown. A true, a Best true episode to Maury ever. I think that's the only time I watch Maury. I think that's the only interest I had in Maury. I'd like turn it yeah. on, be like a Sylveon. No, okay, bye. Was that Maury or Montel? Montel, you're right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because she was with him until like he stopped doing the show, I thought. Because mm -hmm. he like. Yeah, she just passed recently too, I think. RIP Sylvia. If few. you're out there and you're listening, we love you and maybe send some like good, good vibes our way, good spirits down to help us. Yeah, so that's the, the end of the podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. If you stuck with us the entire way, you are the true OG. And we hope to hear, see you, not hear you next next week and every week after. Um, you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok, I believe, and Twitter. And we also have a Facebook page, and we will link all of that both in the by not the bio but the description of this which i believe we're going to put on youtube and then you can also find it in the description of the podcast wherever you happen to be listening so we hope you follow us um and join us here every week and we love you for listening we do good vibes good energy good vibes good energy and a great first April run Fool's i day. hope and yeah yeah day. Great April Fool's Day. For those that are listening on the release day, it is April Fool's Day. Very apt day to start our podcast. So we love you very much. And thank you for listening. Bye now.
Bye.